It's good to see some of you. Uh, it's always interesting to come and be part of one of the Colossae congregations um, after seeing some of you sadly leave Tigard um, to be part of this. We um, are just still so excited. Uh, I think that, honestly, as Matt said, when we started Colossae about 11 years ago, to be fully transparent, we had no idea what we were doing, um, one. But secondly, that we had no idea that God would even come close to doing something like he's done. To look back and to see how every single opportunity that he's had to, to really raise up leaders to take over each congregation has been something that every time to be a part of one like this or Hillsborough or Sherwood, um, it's just so encouraging um, for, for, for us. And all of the pastors are so thankful for the great um, people that God has brought to each congregation as uh, just hearing in staff meetings from Matt, just overwhelmingly thankful for all of you. Um, and your partnership here at, in Beaverton in particular, um, but just to see how God is just moving already in major ways, even just, what, six, seven months ago um, when you guys launched. So um, I find it as an honor to be here. Again, it's not something that I get to do very often. I'm not a traveling preacher like some of the other guys are. Um, I usually stay in Tigard, and that's where I usually stay. But these occasions, it's really fun to be able to come out here and just to kind of see uh, what God's doing. And so I thank you for, for being here this morning. I know it's spring break and nice, so that's why there's empty seats, I'm sure, right? You didn't tell them I was preaching, did you? Okay. Um, so uh, we've been looking at the um, book of Acts, and uh, I would tell you that this is probably both Luke and Acts are two of the most uh, influential books for me personally. Um, I can look back on the times when I was growing in my relationship with Jesus back in college and realizing that studying the history of how Jesus moved, and then when the church is established, are just two books that I think can frame a lot for us. And then we read the other books, and it kind of gives us the colorful history, if you will, or, or the different uh, realities of what's happening, um, and both functioning and sometimes in dysfunction, you see in some of Paul's letters in particular. But when we read through these, these specific books in Luke-Acts, it just helps to frame for us a little bit of the history of what's happening in, in our foundation. And if you know, we've been going through this as a history of our witness, um, and this book is just kind of declaring for us as the church today, maybe not necessarily proclaiming exactly how we need to live things out today, but it's allowing us to see how God was actively moving within these people and within this time to see his church form and to expand. And I'm sure as Matt's been talk talking to you guys about, we we we've been looking at, um, in Tigard, we have this thing, puzzle box, do you use a puzzle box? All right, great. So it's the same thing you're familiar with. We've seen in this is just the beginning of the, the church and it's forming. Then we see how God is actively using both the Holy Spirit and then particularly Paul to expand this church as it goes out from Jerusalem. We see that it goes and expands then to the Gentiles. We saw over the last few months here in particular that it goes to Asia, Europe, and then eventually we're going to see here that it finds its way to Rome. And in each one of these situations, what's very unique about it is that God is the active missionary through this whole process. God is the one that is, is, the, is the active agent. He's the one that's going on before. He's the one that is using these individuals to spread the gospel. And he uses the church or these individuals such as Paul, we see Peter, and we see these, these other names that pop up throughout the book. And these are simply the people that are there to give the witness or the testimony to what God is actively doing. And as we go through these, this text today in particular, there's some very, I think, insightful things that we see in a little bit of a shift from Paul's normal ministry of proclamation 
or as we said, evangelism, to now seeming like it's going to a little bit of an apologetic, okay? Paul is, is shifting because his plight, if you will, in ministry is distinctly going to change as he gets ready to go to Rome and eventually to his death. And so what we see here is that God is going to use Paul in a different way than maybe what we have seen up to this point. And so as we declare this section that we're going to go through this morning, I just want to give a little back history. Matt ended last week in chapter 23, verse 12. I'm going to pick up there, and I just want to tell a little bit of the story here until we get to chapter 23, verse 23, where we're going to start this morning. And what happens here is that Paul is out proclaiming, and he's in front of the Jewish leaders, and he's declaring these pretty insightfully, um, how do I say it, judgmental terms towards them. And this just enrages them to the point that these Jewish leaders, who were supposed to be leading the people spiritually, end up going and trying to bring this Paul and arrest him and to kill him. They no longer want him on the scene. And as Paul is, is out there, there's this news that came that from his nephew to the leader or the ruler at this space where he's in, this tribune, his name is Lysias. And what happens is that this, his, Paul's nephew goes to him at night and tells him, hey, Paul is going to die. The, these Jewish have sent 50 men to ambush Paul when he's on his way out of the city. And so what ends up happening is, is that this leader ends up arresting Paul. He ends up arresting him and putting him in prison to protect Paul. Um, and what we see through this interaction was that Paul is a Roman citizen. Yes, he is very Jewish. Yes, he is, he is declared throughout this entire section his Jewishness. But at this last interaction, knowing that God still has more for him to do, we see that the Apostle Paul declares that I, in fact, am a Roman citizen. And, well, they have to protect him. It's very similar to what we see today. An American citizen going abroad, something happens. The government is responsible at some level to help protect that person. We see here that that's what this governor or this tribune does in this section is to help protect him. So this brings us to chapter 23, 23. I have, I'll have the screen up here, the, the text, or you can turn in your Bibles if you want. But let's just jump right in and kind of see what Paul, where he's going to go here now. It says in 23, Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready. 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. And he wrote this letter and sent it with Paul. It says, Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge with which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent for him at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So what we see here is this guy, Lysias, as, is responsible, if you will, to a certain point. What I mean by that is that he's like, okay, this is getting a little heated. The situation's becoming a little hot. I want to get rid of this guy, Paul, as quick as I possibly can. And you know what? The most logical thing would be is that Paul is from this region of Cilcia. Mm, that region happens to be under this guy, this governor named Felix. <laughs> I'm going to get him out of here. So essentially what this guy does is he takes almost half of his troops that he has in his, 
city. And at nine o'clock at night, when supposedly no one was watching, sends Paul out of the city and gets him out of there. And he writes this nice little letter and sends him away. And he's gone. He's out of my care. Whew. Crisis averted. Well, what happens is that he gets and he sends this whole troop and sends this letter. And, and we'll continue here to see what happens. So it says the soldiers in verse 31, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatros. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go with him. And when they'd come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I give you a hear- I'll give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be, uh, be inherit- guarded in Herod's praetorium. So could you imagine with me Felix, right? He's got this guy, Lysias, over here who's got a small little jurisdiction, probably is really just in charge of keeping peace within the Jews. And then you see this next upper area, the governor, and here it's this guy named Felix. It's like probably the next day, and all of a sudden there's 250 troops are, are coming to bring this prisoner. Well, two thoughts come to my mind, okay? First one is, here we go again, Lysias is dumping another problem on me, okay? That's just my first thought. Uh, this guy is uh, always doing this to me. He's just trying to get rid of these problems so he doesn't have to worry about it. Or the second thought I thought of was, was that Felix is probably sitting there thinking to himself, this must be some pretty high-profile prisoner. I mean, think about how many guards are taking this one guy to bring him to him. And then so he gets this letter and reads it and quickly realizes, okay, he's a Roman citizen, but there doesn't seem to be anything that's accused. You know, what's the accusation here? There's, there's, there's nothing that Lysias even found that could want this guy to be killed. So he does what any good governor does and throws him in prison. <laughs> he's like, okay, well, we'll wait till the accusers show up. And this was according to the Roman law. What stated was that if a Roman citizen was to be tried or accused of a crime, that the accuser would have to come and present their case before the Roman, whatever, tribune, governor here, eventually Caesar, in order for their accusations to be heard and valid, if you will. And so he's going to wait forever long it takes until his accusers come. We see here that it's not that long, okay? It's actually pretty quick here. And there's something to that. It says that after five days, 24 verse 1, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and spokesmen, one Tertullius, and they laid before the governor their case against Paul. So what's fascinating about this little, little, little statement here is that it only took them five days to come down. That would be actually relatively fairly quick for some group to come and bring their accusations against them. But what also is very interesting here is that this guy, Paul, is such a nuisance to the Jewish leaders that there's two things that are extremely important to observe here. The first one is the high priest Ananias himself comes down. Typically, what would happen was that this guy wouldn't go and travel if there was an accusation brought against them. His place was where he was, and that's where he was going to stay. He would send some lackey out to go and hear the case or to try the case. But this guy, Paul, is a pretty big deal, if you will, according to what's happened in this story so far, that he himself comes and presents himself before Felix. What's also interesting here is, is that they have a hired gun. Tertullius is a Greek-speaking 
lawyer, essentially, that was known during this time, that was hired by the church or the Jewish council to come and present their case before Felix. They didn't want to lose. They were going to get every stop possible. Ananias is going to sit in the front row. We got our hired gun, Tertullius. And I think this shows how amazingly significant the character of Paul is because of what God's doing. They know. They know that the power of the gospel is going forth and they are going to lose their position within the church, within the Jewish people, if Paul continues the message. And so what we see here is as they come and present their case before this guy, Felix. He says this, And when he was summoned, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying, since through, we, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with will gratitude. My goodness. Just like a lawyer, right? He stands before Felix, and he goes, and what does he do? He just kisses his butt. Three lines of, of just giving praise to some guy. I mean, this is a, a very well-trained lawyer. He knows what to do and what to say. But it says this, But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is the ringleader of the sect of Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple. But we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything with which we accuse him. And that says the Jews also joined in charge, affirming that all these things were so. So after Tertullius gives this, this flattery of statements to kind of get Felix feeling pretty good about himself, he then just goes and spews lies. He goes and he testifies and brings these accusations against the Apostle Paul. Go back and read your, your scriptures. Go back and read this history. There is nothing of what they're accusing him that he actually did. Nothing. They're so worried about Paul and his ministry, about his witness and testifying to the things of the gospel message of Jesus Christ, that they are willing to do anything and everything to rid them of Paul. Talk about the power of the gospel. This is the power of the gospel. We know it even today is still true. When people are worried, they go and run in fear, or they protest and they start to bring accusations against the name of Jesus Christ. What we see here is Paul's about ready to give one of the most amazing defenses in, in any, anywhere. We see here that in verse 24, I mean, chapter 24, verse 10, it says, And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replies, and he says this, Knowing that for many years you have been judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. I don't know about you. That's one of the weirdest things that anybody would ever say in court. I just served on jury duty a couple weeks ago. I did my civic duty. But let me tell you right now, it's not something that you cheerfully do, unless you're one of those people that enjoy it. Great for you. But it wasn't something that cheerfully was something that entering a courtroom, I don't think anybody experiences that cheer or joyfulness. But here Paul is standing in front of this governor who literally holds his life in his hands, and he says to him, I cheerfully give you my defense. 
I'm willing to stand before you and proclaim the truth with joyfulness or with cheerfulness. He had every right to be angry, didn't he? He had every right to be furious, to to go up there and just start to scream at them in anger. But that's not what Paul's response is. He says, I cheerfully give my defense. This is what he says. He says, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. Paul goes, hold on. Whoa, 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 whoa. This could not possibly. It's only been 12 days. Do you really think that I have that much power to rise up riots in every city where I've been, in every location? It's impossible. I'm not that powerful. I, I don't have that kind of authority. And secondly, when I went to the temple, I was just peacefully purified, worshiping in the inter- intersection of the temple, just worshiping my God. I didn't do any of what you said. He makes a strong apologetic case here against these accusations by these things, that, that, that these occurrences that were in fact not true. Then he continues, he says this, but this I confess to you. Oh boy. He's cheerful and he's going to give a confession. Every lawyer's nightmare, right? When somebody on the stand says, I confess to you something. But what Paul says is something that is a confession that is going to bring truly glory to the God in heaven. He says that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of, big word, our fathers. Believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection both of the just and of the unjust. Paul says, I declare before you, I confess to you, yes, I am part of this group, this organization. But you know what? We believe the same things that these people accusing me believe. We, we believe the same thing. The truth is there. All of these things that, that they proclaim from the fathers, their forefathers before, the prophets, the law, we believe the same things. Paul's declaring to them that this is the history of their witness. That what was declared in the Old Testament is the power of God actively moving through the people, right? To bring it to a point after the rejection for the gospel of Jesus coming and dying on the cross for our sins. He says, you believe the same things I do. If you want to accuse me, you could accuse yourself because we believe the same things. We've had the same witness the same testimony has been the same thing that we both believe. And Paul says that this is the same thing even for the resurrection of this coming Messiah, of the just and the unjust. We believe the same things. But here's the line that's a little bit different than maybe what theirs is. It was the same thing that he mentioned in chapter 12, first few verses. He says it again here. He says, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. They couldn't stand in court with a clear conscience before God. They knew their accusations were false. They hired a lawyer to come in and to try and bring accusations against them. Paul says to you, I stand before you, 
with the man with his power and control to kill me. And I stand here with a clear conscience. Paul's saying, whatever happens to me, it's all up to God. The truth of the way I've lived my life is that I can stand before both God and man with a clear conscience. I can testify that everything I believe, the things I've done, all are representation of the will of God in my life. You know, after reading this, I, I had to take a little, little pause here. <laughs> Sitting in my chair at the coffee shop, yes, in a public place, had to sit there and stop for a second. Because the really reality of it is, is that I, I would say that I believe in the gospel, right? I'm a pastor. I would say I live, live according to the gospel by the best way. But to truthfully say, I don't know that I could honestly say that I live with a clear conscience because I know there's fallacies within my life. And so reading this, I, I had to take a step back and say, do I actually believe the truth of Scripture and willingly live that truth every day, even if it meant that I was going to die? That I could stand before man and God and say, I have a clear conscience. I don't know where you're at. I don't know if that's something, but I would just encourage you. This is part of this entire Lent season. This is a chance for us prior to Easter Sunday where we can believe in the truth of what Jesus accomplished that we can take some time to self-examine. We, we can take some time to, to stand in, in, in this place of confession, that we can stand in, in the place of repentance with joy. And allow ourselves and our hearts to be truly transformed by the gospel message of Jesus Christ. So we could also align our hearts with Paul and say, I stand and live a life with a clear conscience. You know, this is just something that I, as a little subtle note, if you will, in this text, that I, it was just something that moved me. But Paul continues here in his defense and ends it and says this, Now after several years I came bringing alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowds or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you. Paul basically says, hey, your accusers, the other ones that are telling me that I didn't supposedly you know, purify myself, they're not here, but I'll, I'll stand here anyway. He says, or let these men themselves say that wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. I've done nothing that you've told me. I've done nothing that you've accused me. The only thing that I stand for in difference is the most important thing, that Jesus, in fact, did resurrect from the dead. That's not a reason for you to put me to death, oh, Felix. So after Paul finishes his defense, he acknowledges his presence in the temple. He acknowledges that he believes this way. He acknowledges that he does understand the Old Testament and believes it and lives it. And he also acknowledges that I truly do stand for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He finalizes his statements in front of Felix. We see that these accusers are, are trying to build this case for him. But what we're about ready to see is that Felix literally has absolutely nothing that he can hold Paul for. This man is innocent. He is completely innocent. There's nothing according to Roman law that would dictate that this man would be put to death, let alone be put in prison. And it says in verse 20, chapter 24, 22, it says, But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. 
bureaucracy at its finest, right? Felix is unwilling to make the decision. He's like, hey, I, I hear it. There's nothing that I can do, but I'll just wait till Lysias comes down here, and then we'll make a decision together. No big deal. Yeah, he's worried about himself having a riot on his hands. If he lets him go, Paul might die as a Roman citizen. He might get back to Caesar. He might lose his... So the most um, unbelievably political thing he can do is just let him sit in prison. And that sure is what he does. He said, then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty then that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. What's interesting here is that this is one of those times in, in history where, yes, he's in prison, but Felix also understands that this guy isn't anything wrong, so I'm going to give him freedoms. And I look at this as this is a circumstance or a trial that Paul's going through, but guess what? He has the freedom to continue his gospel work, doesn't he? And if you look back in history, and I want to steal some of Matt's thunder towards the end of the book, but if we know that during this imprisonment and the one in Rome, that Paul is continually moving the gospel forward. He's continually inviting people to come and be encouraged to learn and to sit with him. He's also encouraged to write letters during this period of time. Am I right? To go out. Some of the ones we have in our Bible are letters that he wrote as encouragements to the churches, both here and later on in his other imprisonment. But Paul's not sitting there in shame, sad, frustrated. No, he's continuing the work of the gospel message going forth. And it says this, After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he had sent for Paul and heard him speak about the faith in Jesus Christ. He's preaching the gospel right in front of a Roman ruler. And it says, And he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And Felix was alarmed and said, Go away from the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Just like the gospel's penetration, right? People don't want to hear it. Ah, I got to get out of here. And then he says, uh, at the same time, he hoped that money would be given to Paul. And he sent for him often and conversed with him. And it says, and when two years had elapsed, two years, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. This isn't like a short overnight or a week stay. Two years Paul spent time in prison, continuing the message of the gospel of Jesus. I don't know about you, but this would be a chance that Paul could have just, like I said, wallowed in his misery and self-pity of being stuck in prison and not done anything. But God used him to further the gospel right in front of the own Roman rulers, all the way to encouraging members of churches from else. This freedom that Paul experienced wouldn't be seen as freedom by anybody else except for someone who's gone through the things that he's gone through. He used this for furthering the gospel, for the goodness that God wanted for him, not for something that was a distraction or even bring self-pity and loathing. Narrative is something that tells a story, but there, if we read a, or read a passage like this, there's just a few reflections that I think are just so evident in this section. The first one is, is this, is that the Old Testament is our story, so we needed to make sure that we don't neglect it. Some of you that are here that know me and heard me speak before at Tigard know that I'm an Old Testament guy, all right? I love to learn and read through the Old Testament. Maybe not Numbers and maybe not Leviticus all the time, but learning and studying and paying attention to the story of the Old Testament is extremely significant. 
And why I connect that here is that the Apostle Paul declared in his own speech in front of Felix how important it is. He was connecting right there in the moment the history of his witness back to the prophets. He was connecting back the the history of what the, the law was because that's where our story starts. Yes, Jesus is the significant character, right? But that's not where the story of redemption, that's not where the story of salvation, that's not where the story of God begins. It starts all the way back in the book of Genesis as God chooses to bring humanity on the earth and continues all the way till we have the desperate need of humanity at the point of Jesus Christ. And I would just challenge you to take time to consider that this is something that's also part of our history, of our witness, not just this time that we're reading in the book of Acts. The second one, that reflection that I want us to take is a doozy. It's one that I didn't like to write. It says, allow your circumstances to increase your effectiveness. Allow your circumstances to increase your effectiveness. This one hit home to me because I think that this is something that if we looked at Paul's testimony, he was stuck in prison numerous times. He was stuck in prison here for two years without any fault, without any reason whatsoever to be held there, and was experiencing and has faced various persecution. We've seen that throughout this entire book. And instead of Apostle Paul sitting and trying to only live within that circumstance, you see that he pivots, right? He doesn't go to a place of darkness. He doesn't go to a place where, where, where it's, it's, it's something that makes him in, ineffective. No, he pivots and allowed his circumstances to increase his effectiveness for the gospel. You know, I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't understand your circumstances. That's right. Matt obviously could testify more to those than I could. I don't know where you're at. I don't know if there's something that's distinctly um, awful in the health you know, spectrum in your life. I don't know if a loved one's going through a disease or a sickness. I don't know if your marriage is struggling. I don't know if you're financially hit rock bottom and you don't feel like there's any hope. I don't know if there's a place where, where you're going at work where it's just things have turned and it's awful and you hate your job. I don't know the circumstance of which you're working in right now. I don't. I don't know what you're living in. But I do know two things about that. The first one is this, that whatever the circumstance that you have, whatever circumstance you're experiencing right now, God's right there. Open hands, waiting for you to come and turn to him. Jesus has done it all for you and for me. He's accomplished it all. And he says that you can just come to me I know what your burden is, and I'm willing to set you free. I know it's not going to be easy. I know it's something that's so challenging. I understand that. But Jesus is standing there waiting with open arms. And secondly, within that, God can still use you in the most abundant ways for his gospel message to go forth. You're going through something that a lot of people haven't gone through probably. And through this experience, you can allow others to truly see the message of the gospel, the hope with which you have within you can shine forth. But Jeff, I no, it's too hard. I can't do it. Look around in this room. 
there are so many people right here that will be willing to walk alongside you, to love you, to show you the grace that only can be found in the message of the gospel. That's why we preach community. That's why we believe community here at Colossae. Because we can't live life on our own. We need one another so much. I would just encourage you to, in the midst of the circumstances, like we see from the example of Apostle Paul, that we can be used in effectiveness for the message of the gospel, even in our darkest moments. Even in our darkest moments. But that leads us to this last reflection. And this is this, that we need to place our hope rightly in the resurrection so we can live with a clear conscience. I mentioned it earlier. I'll mention it again. It's this. As that we've seen, despite these false claims, these accusations, that Paul was able to stand in front of man and, more importantly, in front of God with a clear conscience. It's because he knew, believed with every ounce of his being that the Messiah had resurrected from the dead and he could live in confidence with that. There was nothing holding him back. Nothing holding him back from experiencing the true joy that comes with the hands of Jesus. That what Jesus' body and blood had done and accomplished for him, that he could stand before all of humanity with a clear conscience because Jesus had done it all. Jesus had accomplished it all. And so there was no reason for Paul to, to sit and wallow. There was no reason for Paul to, to, to worry about life or death, circumstances or freedoms. He didn't matter. The simple thing that he needed was, was done and accomplished already on his behalf. And so he literally could stand, whether it was his life or his freedom, and knowing that God had accomplished everything in and through him with a clear conscience. This is where I said we're going to end this morning, is that I want us to come and to, to be able to stand before Jesus with this clear conscience. And what I would encourage you is, is that maybe we just take a few times as this you know, morning worship ends with us this morning as we sing some songs here. Maybe we take a few moments and ask the Holy Spirit to help us to remember areas in our lives that we need to come for confession. Maybe there's something that's holding us back from experiencing the realities and the joys of this clear conscience that Paul is talking about here. I would encourage you to confess, to, to come and talk to someone, to pray with someone right next to you. I'm here, Matt's here. There's many more community leaders that are in this room. Just ask someone to come and pray for you. The second thing is that I would ask is, is to take a few moments and just to contemplate, contemplate deeply the amazing sacrifice of Jesus. Allow it to set you free. The thing is that we, we also would just sit with our hearts and minds wide open and just to consider all of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. What I want to do is, is I want to invite us to the tables. We've got different tables around the room. And, and these are a place for us as a body of believers to come and to feast together with the goodness of Jesus. When his body and his blood were shed for us, it allowed us to be able to set free. So looking at a life of Paul and saying, oh my gosh, he's so amazing. No, he's just like you and I. But he's been set free because of what Jesus has accomplished on our house. So it's Steve and the rest of the team come and lead us this morning. Let's just take a few moments in quietness as we're singing and just to consider these things before we leave this place and partake of the goodness of Jesus Christ.